we're in the middle of a series called All In, and we've been talking about what it looks like for us as a church, for us as individuals to be all in on the kingdom of God. What would it take? What would it, what would it look like? What would have to change? We've talked about uh, different passages in the Old Testament, some, some passages in the New Testament, uh, different stories of, of people who went all in and, and what life looked like for them. There, there's a movie that came out in 2011. It's based on a true story called We Bought a Zoo. Anybody ever seen that movie, We Bought a Zoo? Uh, the movie stars Matt Damon, and it's an okay movie. It's not terrible. Um, but Matt Damon in this movie plays the role of a British writer named, named Benjamin Mee, M-E-E. And Damon's character in the movie, he rescues a failing zoo, all while trying to figure life out as a, as a widower and a single parent. But there's a line in this movie that is, that is unforgettable. And it's attributed as an actual quote of Benjamin Mee. And this is what he said. He said, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Now, that, I think that's not just a great line from a movie. But honestly, I think that's, that's an attitude that can change the plot line of your entire life. 20 seconds of insane courage. That's really all it takes. I mean, think about it. That's about all it took uh, for Peter to get out of the boat and to walk on water, wasn't it? 20 seconds of insane courage, that's about all it took for, for David to charge Goliath. 20 seconds, that's about all it took for Zacchaeus to climb a sycamore tree. History has this tendency to turn on a dime, and that dime is the defining decision that takes about 20 seconds of insane courage. But if you have the courage to take that one step of faith, it, it has the potential and the possibility to change your life forever. There's a passage in the Old Testament that we're going to look at today. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 14. So if you've, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over to that. And in this passage, it gives us a glimpse of, of, of a person with insane courage. A, a person who's a, a cliff climber. Um, that's what we've called this message, uh, climbing the cliff. And, and this story is about a, about a man who was all in and climbing a cliff. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I visited with the elementary kids on Wednesday night. Um, and that's really a, a great thing. If you're, if you're not here on Wednesday nights to see, and there were a bunch of them this Wednesday. There were about 20 of them down there. Um, it's been a while since I've done children's ministry. And so I, I was, Miss Brenda wanted me to come down and talk to them ab about what we're talking about and being all in. And so I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll tell them this story. Because this one, honestly, this is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. I didn't think, though, that most of the Old Testament stories involve some sort of killing. I mean, there's a lot of war that takes place. And so, as I got to a part about the Philistines and the Israelites being at war with each other and, and them killing each other, well, the Israelites defeated. And I was using the word defeated, and a couple of the kids, the younger ones, they were like, they killed them, right? And I said, well, they defeated them. They said, well, they killed them, right? And finally, I, I gave in, acquiesced, and said, well, well, yeah, they did kill them. And uh, Tatum, Tatum Butler, sweet little kid, he says, well, this story isn't PG at all. <laughs> so if your kids came home on Wednesday night saying that Adam told us a not PG story, it wasn't really that bad, okay? It was a Bible story, all right? But he's right, it wasn't exactly PG. And, but if you remember a lot of the Old Testament history, it's not exactly PG. You'll remember that most of the history is they're, they're at war. And one of the groups of people that the Israelites seem to be at war with more than anybody else is the Philistines. The Philistines, let's just be honest about it, they weren't nice people. They're not the people that if they move into your community, you're probably putting your house up for sale and, 
and looking for a new place to live. You don't want to live ne- nice, uh, next to these people. They're not nice people. We, we look at them as kind of the scourge of, of the earth. We want nothing to do with them. Goliath, the most famous Philistine of all, he, he was so cocky and arrogant in his attitude that he called the Israelites dolls. He said, who are you to come at me like a doll? The, the Philistines just weren't nice people. And during this time in Israelite history, the Philistines seemed to be always getting the best of the Israelites. They're at war with each other, and the Philistines just seem to be wearing the Israelites out. And so our story picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 2. This is what it says. It says, Saul, that's the king, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Now, this verse doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? It's okay, Saul's taking it easy underneath the tree. But, but remember, if you go back and, and you read chapter 13, the end of chapter 13, and you go back and read kind of the preceding chapters, you'll see that this is a big deal because Saul is leading an army that is just getting their, ap- their tails absolutely kicked. Every battle they go to, they're losing. And Saul is, is just, he's taking it easy. You go back to the end of chapter 13, and you read about that the Philistines, they've come in, and they've gone through the villages uh, of Israel, and they've taken every sort of metal that they could find, and, and they've, they've confiscated it. Because they didn't want the Israelites to be able to turn any, turn any of these things into swords. In fact, the end of verse 13 says that Saul and Jonathan, his sons, are the only two people that have any swords or spears in the entire camp. So the Israelites, their army has no weaponry. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of like going to a, to a gunfight with a knife. I'm going to go to war without any kind of weaponry. That doesn't make sense, does it? And yet Saul, when you see this picture of Saul, he doesn't seem to be worried about that at all. He seems just content to to relax, enjoy life, not worry that the enemy has come in and taken all of their resources to make weapons, not worry that none of his army has any weapons to to speak of. Sometimes one snapshot of of one moment in a person's life can can kind of be a caricature of of a person's entire character. And I think this might be that moment for Saul. I can just picture Saul snacking on pomegranate seeds, resting in the shade of a tree. Instead of picking a fight with the enemy, Saul is picking pomegranates. And this really shouldn't come as any surprise to us because Saul, if you, if you read the Old Testament, Saul has a long history of letting other people fight his battles for him. But his son Jonathan, the other one with the sword, the, the only other person in the entire camp with the sword, he's got a different spirit about him. Jonathan, it says in verse 1, if you you go back to verse 1, it says, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I love that part because I think there was good reason for him not to tell his father. Because if he had told his dad, Hey, Dad, I got this crazy idea. You know, the Philistines, they've got their outpost on the top of these cliffs over there. I think me and my armor bearer, who doesn't have a sword, I think we're going to go and we're just going to pick a fight with them. We're going we're gonna to let them see us out in the open. We're going to climb up a cliff, and we're just going to pick a fight with them. What do you think, Dad? I think Dad would have probably said, you're out of your mind. He might have used some not-so-PG words to, to express that, right? Saul is taking it easy, but Jonathan has a different spirit. Jonathan is preparing for battle. Saul's picking pomegranates, but Jonathan is about to pick a fight. Their, their polar opposite approach is so diametrically opposed that it's, that it's hard to even imagine that Saul and Jonathan are actually father and son because they think nothing alike when it comes to this situation. Saul's playing not to lose, but Jonathan's playing to win. And that's the difference between fear and faith. 
If you let fear dictate your life, if you let fear dictate your decisions, you will live defensively, reactively, and overcautiously. Just think about that for a minute. We've seen that play out over the last three years, have we not? If you let, if you let fear drive all of your decisions, if you let fear dictate your life, you will live this way. You will live defensively. You will live reactively and overly cautious. That's what living by fear does. But living by faith is playing offense with your life. And that's the difference between holding out on God and going all in with God. 20 seconds of insane courage. I can't really think of a better description than, 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 that, uh, than Jonathan picking a fight with the Philistines. I mean, it was crazy. There, there's no denying that this idea is, is a crazy idea. But if God is in it, then, then maybe it's wholly crazy. Maybe it's wholly crazy. And, and let me just tell you, when you decide to go all in with God, people are going to say things like, that's crazy. But you know what? That's okay. When, when you decide to go all in, don't be surprised if people mock you. If you decide to, to do something that is out of the box, that maybe does seem a little bit crazy, don't be surprised if people push back on you and, and, and try, to, try to talk you out of it. it they, will, they will say things about you. They'll think that you're crazy. But here's what I would tell you about that. Get over it and get on with it. I mean, really, we got to get over that. we got to get over what people think about us. People might think that you're crazy when you climb a cliff like Jonathan did. But the only other option for them is to think that you're normal. I mean, that's really the only other option. And I don't think the church has ever been called to be normal. In fact, from the very beginning of the church, the church has been countercultural. It has been anti-culture. I shouldn't say anti-culture, but countercultural. It has been radically different than the rest of the world. It has never looked normal. And the more normal that the church has strived to be, the more normal that Christians strive to be, the less, the less relevant we have become and the less influence we have gained. Right? I'm telling you, we don't want to be normal. I'm good. If people don't think I'm normal, great. If, if somebody, you want to do something for the Lord and they think that's crazy, great. I'm sure the disciples would periodically mock Peter for, for sinking in the Sea of Galilee. But they didn't walk on water, did they? You notice that people who criticize water walkers often do so from the confines of a boat. And people who criticize cliff climbers do from low elevation. David's brothers criticized him for challenging Goliath, but David made headlines while his brothers sat on the sidelines. I'm sure some people got a kick out of seeing a tax collector of all people climb a tree to, to get a glimpse of, of Jesus, but they didn't get invited to lunch with Jesus, did they? So what motivated Jonathan to climb this cliff? What triggered this 20 seconds of insane courage? Well, let me just try and set the scene a little bit. During the early days of Saul's reign, the Philistines, they controlled the western border of Israel, and battle lines were drawn at, at, a, at the pass called Michmash. There were cliffs there. And Saul seemed content to sit on the sideline, but Jonathan wanted to be on the front lines, and so he says, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Going all out and all in for God always starts with one step of faith. This is his first step of faith. I'm going to the other side. It's often the longest, hardest, and scariest step. But listen to me on this. When we make a move that is motivated by God's glory, I believe it moves the heart and, and the hand of God. When, when we do something that is motivated by God's glory, if you want to see, see the hand and the heart of God move for His people, do something motivated for His glory. I think that's when God moves for His people, when we do things that are motivated by God's glory. There comes a moment in everyone's life when, 
when we get to that point where just enough is enough, that the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. And I think this is that moment for Jonathan. I think this is the moment where Jonathan says, you know what, I'm all in. I, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of living on the sidelines. I'm tired of living on the back lines. It's time to go to the front lines. In, in the New Living Translation uh, version of the Bible, they caption this passage of Scripture, the, the little heading in italics. It's not Scripture, by the way. It's not inspired. It's just somebody trying to give you an overview of what's about to happen. They, they caption this passage as Jonathan's daring plan, which I think is great, but let's be honest. This seems like a really dumb plan. I mean, I'm not a military strategist by the stretch of anybody's imagination, but this has to be one of the worst military strategies ever. Jonathan is going to say to his armor bearer, let's go over to the other side. We're going to walk out in the middle of, 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 of the desert, in the middle of the field, let them see us, and then we're going to come up with a sign. This, is, this has got to be, you know, it's, it's suicide, right? Jonathan exposes himself to the enemy in broad daylight. He concedes the high ground. They're not sneaking up on anybody, but that wasn't the plan. We're not sneaking up on you. We're going to let you see us. And then he comes up with this sign to determine whether or not his armor bearer and he should engage the enemy or not. This is what it says. So Jonathan said, come on then. We'll cross over toward them and let them see us. They're not sneaking up on them. It says, if they say to us, Wait there until we come to you. We will stay where, where we are and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And if I'm making signs, I think I'm probably doing the exact opposite of this, right? I'm thinking, you know, our sign will be if they, if they come down to us, that'll be our sign. Better yet, if they fall off the edge of this cliff, that'll be our sign, right? But Jonathan chooses the most difficult, the most dangerous, the most daring option that exists. But honestly, that might be the part of this that I love the most. W when did we start believing that Jesus died to keep us safe? He, he didn't, okay? We, we have this misconception in the church and in our lives and in our culture that if we just follow Jesus, everything's going to be just this rose garden for us. Everything's going to be perfect. It's going to be safe. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. And that's what Jonathan was all in on. He was all in on a dangerous, daring plan because he knew that the Lord would be in it. And honestly, I'm not sure what would have been more dangerous for Jonathan, climbing the cliff or, or fighting the Philistines because there was no guarantee that Jonathan and his armor bearer would even survive the climb. I mean, it's not like the Philistines just dropped a rope down and a harness to him and said, hey guys, come on up. I mean, they, they didn't do that at all. And even if he made it to the top, Jonathan and his armor bearer we're outnumbered something like 10 to 1. And oh, by the way, they have one sword. Anybody ever gone rock climbing? Anybody? A couple of you? A few? I've been once or twice to the indoor rock climbing places, and I'll just tell you, it, it's not for me. Um, I, I'm not very athletic. I don't have a lot of upper body strength. It's uncomfortable. Everything that is required for rock climbing, I don't have. And so it's just not for me. It's not fun. All right, but some people really like it, and that's okay if it's at your thing. But one of the things that really gets me is that if you go rock climbing for a couple of hours, your, your hands, they get kind of clenched in this claw-like position. And they might stay that way for, for a couple of hours just because you've, you've put so much strain on your hands, and, and this is just what they look like for that. I can't even imagine trying to sword fight after climbing a cliff. But what a picture of what all in is all about. 
It's not looking for an easy way out. It's, it, it's an all-out assault. It's not taking the path of least resistance. It's committing to the path of greatest glory, which usually means the most difficult and dangerous options available. It's the difference between letting things happen and making things happen. And Jonathan knew that if he pulled off this, this against all odd, odd upset, that God would get all of the glory. So what motivated Jonathan? What triggered his 20 seconds of insane courage? What gave him just the good old-fashioned guts to climb the cliff? I mean, you can't psychoanalyze somebody that lived thousands of years ago. But there's one statement that Jonathan makes that I think is his MO, and it's one of my favorite sentences in all of Scripture. It's the thing I've been praying all week, um, and it's the thing I'm going to keep praying. It's in verse 6. If you, if you read verse 6, here's what it says. It says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. That was Jonathan's MO. Hey, we, we're going we're gonna to let the Philistines see us. We're going to go all in, and perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. You know, I think most people operate out of the opposite mentality. Perhaps the Lord won't act on our behalf. They let fear dictate their decisions instead of faith, and so they end up under a pomegranate tree in the outskirts of Gibeah instead of on the front lines of battle. Our our lack of guts is really a lack of faith. Instead Instead of playing to win, we play not to lose, but cliff climbers, they would rather fall on their face than sit on their butt. They would rather make mistakes than miss opportunities. Cliff climbers know that one step of faith can create a tipping point that changes not only their destiny, but the, but the course of history. And that's exactly what happened in the wake of Jonathan's bold move. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climb up this cliff, and they, when they get there, they're greeted by 20 to 25 Philistines who all have weaponry, who all attack. And it's not like Chuck Norris and the Walker, Texas Ranger scenes where you know, they conveniently fight one-on-one. I don't think that's how it happened at all. All of these Philistines attack, and Jonathan and his armor bearer defeated all 25. They kill all the Philistines. And look what verse 23 says. It says, so on that day, the Lord saved Israel. On that day, the Lord saved Israel. And all it took was one daring decision. And let's be honest, that's all it ever takes. Jonathan's cliff, cliff climbing is like Alice, the, the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. If you don't go down the hole, you'll always wonder, what if? If you don't climb the cliff, you'll always wonder, what if? And I'll just tell you, I don't want to wonder, what if? The longest regret people have are the inactions regrets. The things that you would have, you should have, you could have done, but you didn't. But this day could be that day. And all it takes is one defining decision. Mark Batterson gave a commencement speech uh, once a a few years ago, and I want to share with you part of what it says because I think it summarizes what we've been trying to say in this series of messages. Here's what he said to a young group of people graduating from college, getting ready to take on the world. But I think it's appropriate to say to a church and to the body of Christ who's seeking to go all in. He said this. He said, quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-ordained passions. Go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Keep asking questions. Keep making mistakes. Keep seeking God. Stop pointing out problems and start becoming part of the solution. Stop repeating the past and create the future. Stop playing it safe and start taking risks. Expand your horizons. Accumulate experiences. Enjoy the journey. Find every reason you can to celebrate everything that you can. Live today like it's the first and the last day of your life. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Take flying leaps of faith. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. 
Go all in with God. And when I read those words, I'm inspired and I'm motivated. And something within me kind of wells up. And I knew I was going to get emotional. I had to be in. I'm going to take a time out for just a second to let you all in on a little transparency. I have all week struggled with this message. Because I don't live this. I don't. The reality is, is that most of us don't live this. But if we're going to be all in, then something has to change. When I read those words like that, I, I'm inspired and challenged that something within me needs to change. Something within me needs to change the way that I lead. Something needs to change the way that I lead this church. Something needs to change within the attitude of our church that we're not just content to sit on the sidelines and watch the world pass us by. But I think that's what we've become. And I don't want to be that anymore. Listen, I think Christians, we ought to be peace-loving people. We should follow people. We, we, should, we should seek peace with each other as often as possible. And I think we do for the most part. I think we try to. But in our efforts to make peace with people, we've made peace with the world. In our efforts to make peace with people, we've made peace with, with the devil. We've made peace with sin. We, we've made peace with playing defense and when we really just need to be picking a fight. And that's exactly what Jonathan did. He, he decided that he was going to pick a fight with the Philistines. He, he was tired uh, of backing down, so he stood up. He was tired of playing defense, so he played offense. He was tired of the status quo, so he, so he dared to challenge and disrupt the status quo. I think we need to pick a few fights sometimes because we've gotten too comfortable with comfort. We've gotten too comfortable with sin. We've gotten too comfortable with the status quo in our individual lives and in the life of our church. So how do we pick a fight? Because I think we need to pick some fights. Here's the first thing. It starts with getting on your knees and praying. Prayer is picking a fight with the enemy. It is spiritual warfare. Prayer transports us from the, front line, from the sidelines to the front lines, and that's where the battle is won or lost. But let me be real clear about this. We can't just pray. We can't just pray. We also have to take a step to take a stand. And when we do, we open ourselves up to what God is willing and able to do next in our lives. James was very clear about this, that faith without action is dead. So if we pray, that's the evidence of our faith, right? But if we don't do anything with that, then all we did was say words that meant nothing. We should have just held our breath or something. I think we've conveniently forgotten that we were born in the middle of a battlefield. The cosmic battle between good and evil, it rages all around us all of the time, and yet we live as if we're living in peacetime. Look, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rallied the troops and he sounded the charge to come to spiritual arms. He said, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you read that and that doesn't fire you up, that doesn't make you want to charge the gates, I don't know what else to do for you. But, but when I read something like that, when I hear Jesus say, I, I will build my church and the gates of hell, they have no chance. Man, that fires me up. I want to be a part of that. Gates are, are defensive measures. That means by, by definition, we're called to play offense, not defense. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. And it's, it's taking back enemy territory. It's taking back souls and people from the enemy. And yet somehow we've reduced righteousness to the absence of wrongness. 
But goodness isn't the absence of badness. You can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Remember in the parable of the talents. Breaking even is not good. Breaking even is bad. You've got to ante up. Lukewarm is detestable. It's it's an all in. It's it's an all or nothing proposition. You've got to risk something. You have to take a stand. You can't just sit on the sidelines or sit in the pew and be comfortable there. We have to do something. We have to risk something. On October 31st, 1517, a monk named uh, Martin Luther, you've probably heard of him, he picked a fight with the religious establishment. He had the audacity to challenge the status quo by attacking the selling of indulgences. It was, the selling of indulgence was a kind of a buy now, sin later proposition. You're going you're gonna to buy your forgiveness now so that you can sin all that you want later. And Martin Luther thought that was an important practice, and he, and he was right. And so Luther posted 95 theses on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that, that one act ignited the Protestant Reformation. And here's what's incredible to me about this. Is that this little known monk in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere could impact history the way that he did. I mean, he changed the world. But that's what happens when you go all in. I don't think Martin Luther knew that he was making history when he was making history. But our small acts of courage have a domino effect. When we do what is right, regardless of circumstances, regardless of consequences, we set the table for God to turn the tables. All we need to do is to step up and to step out. At the Diet of Worms, yes, that is a real event. At the Diet of Worms in 1521, Martin Luther was put on trial by the Holy Roman Empire. One note about the Holy Roman Empire. It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. Okay? So just... Know that when you read history. But he was summoned to, for trial by Charles V and put on trial for his beliefs. He was given the opportunity to recant all that he had said and to recant his beliefs, and he would go free. And here's what Martin Luther did, said. He mustered the moral courage to take a stand, and he said this. He said, my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. You know, I think that's been happening this week at Asbury University. For the last two weeks, actually. Students have begun taking a stand. And they're all in. And it's having a domino effect, if you haven't noticed. We're seeing around the country students who are statistically supposed to be leaving the faith. Igniting and rekindling the flames of faith in others. So let me be real honest and maybe, maybe even too transparent for you for a moment as we close our time this morning. Now I'm going to ask our, our worship team if they want to come on and get ready for our, our, our decision time. But I've been inspired this week by watching the reports of what's happening at Asbury. And I hope that, I hope that you have as well. And it, and it has sparked within me a desire and this need to pick a few more fights. It's, it's, it's caused me to say, you know, I, I want to pick a few fights with Satan. Because if I'm completely honest with you, I tend to play it, more than tend to play it, on the safe side. And that's probably not a surprise to a lot of you that know me. But if I'm even more honest with you, I prepare most messages and come to church most Sundays without any expectation that the message will be heard or acted upon. And I know preachers aren't supposed to admit those kind of things, right? That's, that's bad PR for us. But I think you'd be surprised at how many preachers would, would admit to the same thing. 
And as I've been thinking about this message and, and just this ongoing reports of revival or awakening or whatever you want to call it, I've just been convicted by the Holy Spirit that I have to take a stand, that I have to pick more fights, that I can't play it safe anymore, that if, if what I want for this church is actually going to happen, if the vision that, that God has laid out for our leadership is actually going to happen, then we can't play it safe anymore. So we've got to climb more cliffs with a simple prayer that perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. I want to be more like Jonathan. I want to be more like Martin Luther. I want to be more like the students at Asbury University. More than anything, I want to be more like Jesus. And I want our church, our community, I want it to be more like heaven on earth than anywhere we know. I want our mission to lead people to love and follow Jesus to not just be something that we say at the end of a service on a Sunday morning, but something that we actually do Monday through Saturday. I've been guilty of, of hedging my bets from time to time. More than just time to time. But if I'm going to preach to you that you got to be all in, then i got to be all in with you, right? And I just think that the Lord might be saying the same thing to some of you. I came in today praying, and, and really all week, praying that perhaps the Lord would act on our behalf. And I'm praying that all the time now. In fact, I think that, that's just going to be a staple. In fact, I might even get it and hang it on my wall somewhere. So today, here's the deal. I'm just asking, if you need to take a stand and step out, if you need to do that, then I'm with you. I'm telling you, if you need to take more risk, then I'm with you. If you need someone to fight for you and with you, then I'll fight for you and with you. If you need someone to climb a cliff, I'm not very good at it, but I'll climb a cliff with you. But even better than me, Jesus is with you. So take the step, climb the cliff, pick the fight, whatever little saying you want to use, but do it. And perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Would you stand with me as we prepare to sing?